Right, we might as well start. Uh, I'm taking the chair for this evening. My name is uh, Professor Charles Goodhart, and I'm an emeritus <coughs> professor of the Financial Markets Group here. Uh, and it's my privilege and honor to welcome Lord Hill uh, to this evening's event. Uh, we do have something in common. We both went to Trinity College, Cambridge, which means, of course, what Lord Hill was saying must be absolutely correct. <laughs> Anyone going to Trinity College always is correct. Um, Lord Hill uh, has had a career, first as a political advisor uh, to various ministers in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, he was a political advisor in particular uh, to John Major uh, and in particular in the course of the Maastricht uh, discussions. Uh, then he was in the private sector as a consultant for a time. Uh, he was ennobled in 2010 uh, and subsequently became Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, which I must say I've never understood what the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster actually does. I can, I can tell you later. Uh, but also Leader of the House of Lords, and I know what Leader of the House of Lords does. Uh, and then he was asked uh, to become our Commissioner uh, for Financial Stability, Financial Services, and the Capital Market Union in 2014 uh, in the Juncker Cabinet, a position which he will hold until 2019. So it's my privilege to uh, welcome Lord Hill here. But first, a quick comment that I'm supposed to make. Uh, for those Twitter users, I don't know what Twitter is, but for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE in capitals, single market uh, in subscript, and I'd ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will be made available as a podcast subject to no technical difficulties. As usual, after the uh, lecture, there will be opportunity if you put your questions to Lord Hill. Uh, but now, please, will you join me in welcoming uh, Commissioner Hill uh, to LSE to deliver his lecture entitled The Single EU Capital Market, Progress and Challenges. Well, Charles, thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm very pleased to he be here, and I wanted to use this occasion as an opportunity to talk a bit about the single market, why I think it's good for the UK and its financial services industry, and why I think that it would be rash to turn our back on it just as we're taking a step further by building a single market for capital in Europe. Now, over the past 30 years, there's been one voice in Europe which has consistently made the case for the single market, Britain's. It's Britain that has pushed to get rid of trade barriers to make it easier for European companies to grow and sell into bigger markets and compete effectively with rivals in America, China or Japan. It's Britain which has championed competition and free trade inside Europe and with the rest of the world as a force for good, a force for growth, a force for jobs and for better products and better services at lower prices. 
So my work to deepen the single market in the area of financial services is part of a long-established British tradition in Europe. And if you look back at the arguments made by Mrs. Thatcher in her famous Bruges speech, it's striking just how successful Britain has been in making its case. In bringing the arguments against protectionism into the mainstream and shaping the European single market as we now know it. Working with our European partners, Britain has helped create the biggest market in the world, a market of 500 million consumers in which European companies can trade freely by right without tariffs, custom checks or regulatory barriers. It's a market that's growing, not as fast as we would like, but after difficult times, the EU and the euro area are on a steady upwards trajectory. And over the last 15 years, EU members' trading activity has seen the largest increase among developed countries, while NAFTA members' trade has remained largely unchanged. Now, I think that the single market stands to benefit all members of the EU, but the UK is particularly well-placed. We're business-friendly, we're an open economy with a skilled workforce, we're comfortable with diversity, we're ready to welcome talent from abroad, and we speak English. Now, these strengths make us the obvious launchpad for international investors looking to break into the single market. Three-quarters of foreign investors cite access to the EU's single market as a key reason for their investment in Britain. And it makes us a great export base from which everyone benefits. Car manufacturers, farmers, architects, broadcasters, advertising executives. They're all successfully selling into the EU and attracting investment from it. Today, nearly 50% of our exports go to the EU and 50% of our foreign direct investment comes from other EU countries. Now, it's difficult to think of a part of the British economy where membership of the single market has brought more benefits than financial services. The UK is the EU's largest financial centre, a global financial hub. It offers a breadth of services attracting business from all over Europe. Companies based here advise on the deals, they arrange the financing, they draw up the contracts, they provide the insurance. And a quarter of the financial services income in the EU is generated here in the UK. Ambitious European companies come to Britain looking for funding and advice in a financial sector that can give them what they need. Nearly half of the equity raised on capital markets in the EU is raised in the UK. 40% of the EU's listed SMEs are listed on UK exchanges. Nearly 40% of European assets under management are managed here. And we're home to around 40% of the world's foreign exchange trading and 50% of derivatives trading. Last year, London was once again rated by the Global Financial Centres Index 
as the world's most competitive financial centre, which is hardly a sign, by the way, of a city drowned or strangled in red tape, as is sometimes claimed. And, of course, the benefits of this industry go well beyond London. There are over a million jobs in the financial services sector in the UK, of which two-thirds are outside London, 85,000 in Scotland, 100,000 in the North West, for example. 8% of our national income comes from the industry, and it contributes around 13% of all corporation tax receipts. Now, of course, that success owes much to the UK's intrinsic strengths. I am not arguing for one moment that it is down solely to the single market. But it is the single market that connects the UK as a financial centre to the rest of the European economy. And it's a crucial link that underpins the UK as a global financial services hub. Now, how does the single market create that link in practice? One crucial aspect is that British companies benefit from what's called the passport system that means they can do business wherever they choose in Europe. From a UK base, they can offer services in 27 other EU countries. Regulators have to be kept informed, but no separate authorisation is required. For British banks... That means that they can lend freely into the single market, and they do. Last year, they lent over 1 trillion euros, and they took over 1 trillion euros in deposits across the EU. For banks from elsewhere in Europe, the single market makes it easy to set up subsidiaries and branches on this side of the channel, supporting investment and creating jobs here in Britain. And 20% of banks operating in the UK are headquartered elsewhere in Europe. For international banks and financial services from outside Europe, in particular from the United States, the single market means they can use London as their European headquarters without having to set up subsidiaries elsewhere in Europe. And half the world's financial firms have chosen to base their European headquarters here in the UK in part for that very reason. The single market allows all these players to manage their business on a European scale. It gives them the flexibility to respond rapidly to opportunities in other parts of the single market. It means they can build a hub in Britain and from here respond to growing financing needs elsewhere, like those, for example, of German manufacturers exporting to China. And the benefits of this single market passport system, of course, go well beyond the banking sector. A UK investment manager can be appointed to run investments for continental institutions. Continental corporations can make use of UK market infrastructure to access global markets. It's the British fund management industry that looks after a major chunk of the 8 trillion euros invested in USITs. Europe's globally successful investment product. In the insurance sector, British companies can provide their services without having to undergo any sort of equivalence assessment. And the same goes for reinsurance, for which London is the world's leading market. 
In 2014, the UK exported £22 billion worth of financial and insurance services to the EU. And over the past decade, the surplus from Britain's trade in financial services has more than doubled from £23 billion back in 2004 to £58 billion in 2014. That, I think you might agree, is a success story of which uh, we could rightly feel proud and which I think we should want to keep. Now, in my job as European Commissioner for Financial Services, I'm working now to try to strengthen and deepen that single market. That's why, for example, I launched a call for evidence to review Europe's regulatory framework for the financial sector and to check that it's as growth-friendly as we can make it. It's also why I'm looking at financial services from the point of view of the consumer to see whether we can improve competition and choice and lower costs and improve the quality of the services that citizens use every day. And it's also why I'm working to build a capital markets union, in other words, a single market for capital, to help capital flow more freely throughout the EU. Now, the goal of the capital markets union is to connect savings more effectively to growth, to channel investment to projects that need financing, to give companies a greater choice of funding, and as well to increase the options for people saving for the long term. Why do we need to do it? Well, the EU's economy is about the same size as the US, but our capital markets are about half their size. And if we could grow our equity markets across the EU to bring the smaller ones just up to the EU average, that could raise about 25 billion euros of additional capital each year. So the difference that we could make is real. And I'll just give you a few examples of the work that we're doing. To try to make it easier for companies to raise money on the public markets, we've made a proposal to overhaul the existing system to make it simpler, easier and cheaper for everyone to use. To try and make it easier for companies to borrow, we've made a proposal to restart securitisation markets and to free up bank lending to the wider economy. To make it easier for companies to invest, we're bringing forward proposals to reduce the legal differences that complicate cross-border investment. And to inject more savings into the capital markets, we're looking at proposals for a European market for simple personal pensions. All 28 member states stand to gain from the Capital Markets Union, but I think that Britain is obviously well-placed to make the most of the opportunities that deeper capital markets would create. The UK is already running a surplus in exporting financial services to the rest of the EU, and if capital markets were to grow across the single market, British services would be more in demand and British financial service companies would have new investment opportunities to tap. So if the single market, as I would argue, is working well for British financial services now, if it can be made 
to work better still, what would the implications for the sector be if we voted to leave the EU? What would the alternatives be? And how would they work? And here, to be honest, it's been quite hard to keep up because the answer has kept on changing as one plan after another has been abandoned when it's turned out to offer a worse deal than Britain currently has now. First, we were going to be like Norway until it was pointed out that Norway has to obey most EU rules without having any say over them and also pay into the EU budget. Then we were going to be like Switzerland until it was pointed out that Switzerland has to follow EU rules where it does have market access but doesn't have direct access to EU markets in services, which is, of course, the most important part of Britain's economy and the one where we have the biggest surplus. Then there was going to be a trade deal like Canada's, but that trade deal, while that's great for trade between uh, European countries and Canada, is limited in services. It doesn't include the passporting that I was talking about that is so important for Britain's financial services industry. It still includes some taxes on trade and quotas on beef, all of which would be damaging for Britain's trade with Europe. And so that process has gone on until we were told that we could model ourselves on Albania. Now, I think that if any student at the LSE were to submit an essay making a series of such internally contradictory arguments that you'd be told to rip it up or delete and start again. And it isn't as though providing a credible economic plan for an alternative to EU membership is a new question. Many of those wanting us to leave the EU have been campaigning for it for decades that after all that time, there is still no coherent economic plan for what Britain should do if it leaves the EU suggests, perhaps, that we should be a little sceptical about what they claim. We've also been told we should look to the Commonwealth and to Britain's special relationship with the United States instead of Europe. But when the leaders of Australia, of India, of Canada and the United States, amongst others, say that they think it's in Britain's interest to remain in the EU, we're told not to listen to a bunch of meddling foreigners. Perhaps we should, they listen to the head of the Federation of Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, who warns that, quote, Britain is considered an entry point and a gateway for the European Union by many Indian companies. We firmly believe that leaving the EU would create considerable uncertainty for Indian businesses engaged with the UK. Now that is the same message that I've heard from Hong Kong to the United States. I think it's a cool assessment of how the global economy works. It comes from some of the very people that those in the Leave campaign felt should be on their side of the argument. And I would suggest that if you're betting Britain's whole future on leaving your neighbours and hoping that the rest of the world will open up to you, it's normally a pretty good idea to ask the rest of the world what they actually think 
and then perhaps to listen to what they have to say. Now, with the collapse of these economic arguments, one by one, the Leave campaign... (coughs) No, excuse me. It's the emotion. (laughs) ...appears to have moved (coughs) to the position that was originally adopted by Nigel Farage. And they now say that we shouldn't be part of the single market at all. So, for the moment at least, I think we have to work on the basis that for the Leave side... A vote to leave the EU is a vote to leave the single market. And after having spent the last three decades making the case for it, shaping its rules, and working with our partners to take it further, the UK is now being advised to abandon it for an unspecified new trade arrangement. Terms and conditions, unclear, subject to negotiation. A negotiation, by the way, with 27 countries who sell 8% of their exports to the UK, but on whom we depend for nearly half of ours. So what would it mean for the financial services sector? (coughs) Leaving the single market completely would leave our financial services industry without its passport, without that crucial right to provide services anywhere in the EU from just one country. Without a new agreement, our banks, our investment firms, insurers could face new restrictions on cross-border business. Trading venues, central counterparties, central securities depositories could also be affected unless these infrastructures were recognised as equivalent. And I'm afraid I'm going to explain just a little more detail. I've talked about the crucial importance of passporting for the financial services industry, and that's only available to countries that are inside the single market. If you're not in the single market, you can, in some cases, seek what's called equivalence, whereby the EU judges your national standards to be as good as theirs. Equivalence lets a company provide services into the EU, but unlike passporting, it doesn't let you set yourself up in the European market. To do that, you'd have to set up a separate subsidiary with its own capital requirements, subject to EU and any additional national rules. And none of that is cheap, and none of that is simple. Getting agreement on equivalence isn't easy either, and negotiations take time. A a couple of months ago, I reached an agreement with the uh, United States on equivalence negotiations on so-called central counterparties, the CCPs or clearinghouses. Now, that negotiation that is on one fairly narrow but important issue took four years, even though there was goodwill on both sides and both I and my American counterparty wanted to do a deal quickly. And so, if you don't have passporting, If you haven't yet negotiated or aren't able to negotiate equivalents, then you're left subject to third country rules. And you can only do business with an EU country if its regulator and supervisors agree and you're subject to their rules and you could have to do that individually for each EU member state you want to do business in so you'd lose those cross-border rights. And, of course, you might not enjoy all the protections of EU law against discrimination based on where a business is from. So no wonder 
but the CEO of the London Stock Exchange Group, the, the other LSE, uh, Xavier Rolle, has warned that in the area of clearing, which basically drives the bulk of our flows, the decision to leave the EU would be beyond devastating for the City of London. And I think what's true for financial services is also true for other industries. And I'll just take one example from manufacturing. The Mini, made in Cowley uh, by BMW, 80% of which is for export. Its second, fourth and fifth largest export markets are Germany, France and Italy. 60% of all the parts that go into the Mini are imported, mostly from elsewhere in Europe. So if Britain leaves the single market, let's optimistically assume that Britain and the EU can reach a mutually agreed trade deal before the negotiating deadline, and so there are no tariffs, which would otherwise be 10% on cars under WTO rules. Even in that best case, which by definition would be outside the single market, there would then be customs checks. That process, working out which country each part of a product comes from, adds, according to the OECD, between 2 and 24% to the cost of goods. And exports to Europe would still have to follow European rules and regulations over which we'd have no say. So the mini would become more expensive twice over. First, those 60% of the mini's components from outside the UK would face the cost of customs checks. Then the same happens when the car's exported, including the paperwork explaining where each part was made. And if European regulation on how cars are made changes, as happens from time to time, then the Mini's manufacturing process would also have to change to comply with the new rules for exports to continue. So I think the question isn't whether leaving the EU would be bad for Britain's manufacturers, it's how bad would it be? And again here, no wonder that the head of the Motor Manufacturers Association says that being in Europe is vital for the future of this industry and to secure jobs, investment and growth. Or you could look just at the single market in air travel, which has opened up competition and choice so extensively. It lets new air British airlines compete on a level playing field across Europe and gives customers more rights wherever they fly. As a result, since the 90s, the cost of air travel has fallen on average by 40%. And as the chief executive of EasyJet has said, as a result of Britain's membership, the costs of flights have plummeted while the range of destinations has soared. Now, if we try to avoid these restrictions, if we fight to keep that precious access to the single market, Britain's negotiators would have to face up to a new reality. The reality of negotiating from outside, of trying to persuade trading partners who have every reason to defend their own turf. And even once a deal is finally done, the reality of having to accept that new rules would and could be set with the UK outside the room, without its interests represented at the table, simply informed of the results and any new requirements. So as I've said, I think there is absolutely no reason to believe that discussions would be quick or easy. 
Greenland's negotiation with the EU simply as an overseas territory, that's the closest precedent that we have, that took three years, even though they really only had one subject to talk about, which was fish. Now, Britain's European partners want Britain to stay. They've just agreed a hard-fought settlement in response to the British government's case for change. They clearly think that if Britain leaves, it would be damaging for the European Union and their own national interests at a time when, let's face it, Europe faces serious challenges. So from what I hear working in Brussels, what I hear listening to the national governments of the countries of Europe, I believe that there would be a deep sense of rejection felt by Britain's European partners, particularly given that some of the Leave campaigners have spent many years accusing them of incompetence, corruption, and comparing them recently to the darkest figures in European history. They would certainly want to keep the European Union together, and their voters would quite rightly expect their elected leaders to stand up for their national interests. If Britain were to choose to become a competitor rather than a partner, why wouldn't they seek a competitive advantage in the new relationship to build up their financial services sector and to roll out the red carpet to our bankers, insurers and asset managers? And might I also uh, gently suggest that the best way to warm up the people with whom Britain would in future be negotiating in these vitally important talks isn't to compare their ambitions with those of the Third Reich. Now, when I hear the bold claims uh, that are made by the Leave campaign, the assertions about what will happen unsupported by evidence, the demands for radical change without any clear idea of what that change would mean in practice, the lack of interest in what the great majority of businesses or practitioners in any field actually have to say, it strikes me that something strange has happened in the British-European debate. Thirty years ago, when I first started working for the Conservative Party, it was the pro-Europeans who were the utopians, the dreamers, the people who thought that practicalities were less important than the pursuit of the European ideal. To ask tough questions about how ideas like joining the euro would actually work out, and I was one of those who campaigned against the euro, they defined you as a sceptic. But today, it strikes me that it is some in the Leave campaign who have become the utopians and the Remainers who are more sceptical. It's those who are campaigning to leave who say that we shouldn't worry about these tedious, pernickety questions about the future of our trade with Europe or the rest of the world, or indeed what it might mean for Britain's ability to get its way in the world. Because we'll be completely independent. Anyway, it's clear that all those foreigners need us more than we need them. And if we just bang the table a bit harder, then they're bound to do what we want. And if you do ask a perfectly reasonable question 
about what might actually happen after June the 24th, you're told that you're scaremongering. Well, I was taught that scepticism is a core part of the great British tradition of empiricism. For me, it means mistrusting grand projets and fine visions. It means questioning, doubting, wanting firm evidence before we believe something. It means listening to that little voice in our heads which says, are you sure that that's a good idea? I'm the last person to claim that the EU is perfect and like any human institution, it never will be. But the question is whether the huge disruption of leaving would produce something better. Britain, in or out of the EU, obviously has great strengths and attractions. So I think the question isn't whether Britain would survive outside, but rather whether it would flourish, whether it would continue to do as well as it has done over the last 40 years. So on my argument is that the benefits of membership of the EU and of the single market in particular have been significant for British business and the British economy. In the EU, Britain's biggest export earner, financial services are flourishing, and if Britain remains, there should be more and better to come. But if Britain leaves, one thing is certain and I say this as the person who is responsible for drawing up the rules that govern access to the European single market for financial services. The certainty is that there will be barriers to trade, and that will damage the British economy, jobs and growth. And that is the view of the great majority of British businesses I meet, of the international investors into Europe that I see, of the majority of members of every business organisation in Britain for businesses large or small, of the financial sector, of the manufacturing sector, of the great majority of serious economists, of every international economic institution of the Bank of England. And that economic cost is just one reason why all Britain's friends in the world want Britain to stay. So before we turn our backs on our neighbours, before we strike out into the unknown, before we take a step that would clearly mean a profound change in our economic and strategic relations with the rest of the world, I hope that voters, in the long tradition of British scepticism, they'll weigh the evidence, they'll listen to the arguments, and they'll think long and hard about how best to secure greater prosperity and how best to secure Britain's place in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lord Hill. Uh, he's now ready to take questions. Uh, we're going to take three questions at a time. And the questions, please, questioners, please give their names and affiliation. And we're going to take three at a time. So we're going to take one, two, and three. So you're first. 
My name is Amir, and I'm from Casual Politics. Where? Uh, casual Politics. It's it's an it's an online political magazine. And uh, my um, can I ask one and a half question, if I may? Sir? No, one. Okay. Or or, or a half. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my question is that it, when we um, the overwhelming majority of British people they vote to leave on the twenty third of June. Is it true that under, under the Article 50, um, w when we decide to leave, we still have two years to negotiate our terms as a self-governing country outside the European Union, and in the meantime, we will still be in the single market? So can I ask the other? Right, next question, over there. And then the next one is over there. Thank you. Uh, I'm Harsh, uh, and I'm an ex-alumni. Uh, so th there has been suggestions that uh, if Britain leaves the EU, uh, the capital markets union project might be in serious danger. I mean, what's your view on how it's going to progress uh, legally as well as, as, as a project for a single, in the single market? And the next question is over there in the blue shirt. Hi, um, Sam Moore from E3G, uh, Climate Change Think Tank. Um, Mark Carney has alerted the financial community to the fact that climate change could pose a systemic risk to the financial system. Other factors are potentially just as damaging, like water stress and inequality, which are recognised in the UN's Sustainable Development Goals that the EU signed up to. How will you shape future phases of the CMU to manage these risks? In terms of... Um whether we'd still be in the uh, single market uh, during the process of leaving the EU if, if, if that's what people decide. I think in a way one has to be clear in the argument as to whether uh, you're trying, you, people are advancing an argument which is um, don't worry, uh, we'll still be in the single market for a bit so it won't be that disruptive or whether the argument's being advanced we don't want to be in that horrible useless single market. And so the, uh, the, the, there is a legal process that's set out in the treaties, as you, as you rightly say, that needs to be followed. But beyond that, depending on what the economic model and the nature of the relationship that people thought they wanted Britain to have afterwards with its financial services, you'd then have a set of possibly different negotiations in order to try and get access to that market. And over those... Uh, there isn't a time scale. We don't know what form they'd take, uh, and it would determine on what deal it was that a post-Brexit Britain was trying to negotiate. So the honest answer is that I, I cannot see any alternative that has so far been set out, and they've set out quite a few, which does not increase uncertainty, would not increase the number of barriers to trade for British financial services and both of those I think are the enemies of investment. In terms of the CMU and what would happen if, um, if, 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 if Britain left, <coughs> uh, I think the, f the first point, uh, in some ways the most important point to make, is that this is 
um, a, a, a project to try and get a single market for capital that stands to benefit all 28. And I think some of those uh, countries in the EU which have the least well-developed capital markets could actually benefit the most because if we can increase the flows of capital, increase the uh, sources of funding for their businesses that are looking for funding, uh, we would actually be, be benefiting all the way across. In terms of what might happen politically, I think my first point would be that there is a great deal of political support from all 28 member states and the European Parliament for the idea of trying to uh, build a single market for capital. I'm not sure that would have been the case a few years ago, and it, I think it's one of the consequences of the financial crisis that in a system as Europe is, which has traditionally been very dependent on bank funding, when you get a crisis and then a contraction in bank funding, then the businesses which need that funding to grow are finding it harder to get the money. So I think a whole range of countries are um, attracted to the idea, support the idea that we need to deepen and strengthen our capital market. So I'm sure that work would continue. The difference, though, I think, is that uh, building it uh, with a different relationship from the single biggest player in capital markets, as I set out at some tedious length, uh, in terms of the share of markets and so on, building it without doesn't seem to me to make a huge amount of sense. And that when you have debates about the rules that are going to govern it, at the moment what happens is that uh, the countries obviously discuss those rules, the, then the parliament has their say. But in the debate about those rules, because Britain uh, is a big player, has a lot of expertise, and everyone knows um, it has that role in financial services, its voice carries a lot of weight. If that voice isn't there, the discussions about regulation, and also at an international level, I mean, irrespective of CMU, the regulation coming from global uh, uh, you know, rule-setting bodies, those, those debates go on, but uh, the British voice isn't shaping it. The voice of different financial centres, which even if they didn't want to take a competitive advantage, they're shaped very differently, as, as you and others here will know. The shape of the uh, German financial services industry, for example, is very different from the British one. The shape of the French one is different again. So you'd end up, I think, with a result that is slightly different from what you might otherwise get if the UK was in. And I think it does provide opportunities for the British financial services sector, which is why they are extremely enthusiastic about it. On this important question about um, climate change and systemic risk and the linkage to capital markets union, I think this is clearly um, an area, I mean, it's an area I have to look at both from a sort of systemic risk uh, point of view, um, where obviously I'm following what is going on in the FSB with Carney um, carefully, uh, and also thinking about what the um, implications uh, might be 
for the CMU. I mean, here I think there's quite a lot of work being going on on a voluntary basis with green bonds uh, and trying to set the criteria for that. So you're right that um, this is a, a, a fast developing area that we need to um, think carefully about what the implications are both for financial stability uh, and also for um, how uh, markets develop. Right, next slot of three questions. Uh, no, man behind you, I'm sorry. And then two over here. Um, uh, first of all, Graham, if you give your name, and then uh, we'll have two by together, make it easier to do the. But you come next. Yes, Graham Bishop, independent commentator. Um, first of all, thank you very much for such a brilliant analysis of the lack of thought by the uh, levers. Absolutely dramatic. But I want to come to the point of equivalence. The moment that we leave the EU, the regulations on financial services, the regulations rather than directives, cease to take effect. Therefore, as I understand it, our complete financial regulation system would have a very serious problem because its details would have disappeared. Um, until the UK has created some alternative system, how could you begin the process of declaring the UK financial services regulation to be equivalent. It would take a long time. Next two questions. Um, I'm just wondering whether you can explain... Name and affiliation. My name is Mark. I'm studying a a political economy of Europe at the European Institute here at LSE. It's a master's. And um, I'm just wondering whether you can explain what what explains the the um, the inexistence of an international financial centre within the eurozone able to rival London, for instance, considering that all major currencies have an international financial centre. And since, you, since you've mentioned London, would London be an explanatory factor to that? My name's Hugo. I'm an ancien of the College of Europe. Um, I would like to ask, traditionally the UK has been seen as a counterbalance to integration, uh, although obviously on the single market that is not necessarily the case. Uh, do you think both in an in and an out scenario, the direction and focus of work on integration would change. For example, would there be, if we stay in, more projects for the 28, like the CMU, uh, and if we leave, an end, essentially, to opt-outs on a whole range of things, the Swedish sort of Schrodinger's currency, for example? Well, working backwards this time... um, The honest answer uh, is that being completely clear what might happen in different circumstances is is hard to do with any certainty because there are so many unknowns. I think that uh, the question about further integration is... um, uh, There's been, as you'll know, the Five Presidents' Report looking at the need for further integration in order to make the Eurozone work better and strengthen the governance. For instance, some of the work I'm trying to do on strengthening banking union, that is clearly uh, going to happen come what may. Um, I think that the uh, significance of the the, the aspect of the um, UK settlement that hasn't had that much attention about the balance between the euro ins and the euro outs and making it clear in future in the treaty that discriminating on the grounds of currency uh, would, would, would not be possible. 
but also making it clear at the same time that those who need to integrate further can integrate further, uh, I think is actually a significant um, development about, um, you know, which points away towards uh, future development. I also think personally um, that the, the way that the debate has been going over ever closer union and people, some people say it's only words, some people, you know, if it's only words, why do people fight about it so hard? I think that the council statement um, of a year or so ago that talked about, it for the first time, it, it being possible, thinkable, that not all countries would share the same destination, then that again um, entrenched further in the UK settlement, um, recognising again that not all countries uh, want to go to the same place, I think does mark a shift in terms of some of the debates that are, are going on. Uh, and I think that um, in almost any uh, outcome you can think of, that has, you know, that has happened. I think clearly, were Britain to leave, you would probably expect, in the normal way as has happened in the past, that there would be an impulse towards uh, the other 27 coming together. Um, how that would manifest itself exactly in the current environment, not possible to say, but I think that would happen. And I think, as I was trying to argue earlier, that would inevitably have then consequences for the nature of the discussion that Britain post-Brexit would have with the other 27. In terms of the question about um, why haven't other centres um, developed uh, and um, you know, what would happen uh, to London, um, I think in a way it's, it's a... a part of the argument that I was trying to develop, that I think London has developed its particular um, strength uh, through um, its, some, its specialisms, uh, through the developments um, in the kind of Eurobond market, through uh, the trading of derivatives, uh, and it has managed to attract a, a hub of excellence and financial services that uh, make it um, uh, keep sort of generating itself. But I also think that one of the reasons it is so uh, successful is because of the gateway it offers into the broader, the wider EU. And I was very struck by a conversation I had with a, a Chinese investor in Hong Kong who was just putting money into London, and I asked him, why? Why London? And his answer was, uh, you know, there are great intrinsic merits and strengths that the UK has, the language, the uh, flexibility, hard work, uh, but also because it gives me access to a market of 500 million. And I think this is something you hear time and again from um, overseas investors, uh, and I think it's why they can see it's the most sensible way uh, for keeping that centre of excellence. In terms of Graham's question on equivalence, 
um, I think you, you, you put your finger on one aspect of some of these very practical problems and challenges. Uh, you know, as I was saying, so the deal I did with Americans on with CCP equivalents, which you know is important, vitally important, but it's one narrow subset of the whole financial services sector. I wanted to do it from the minute I got in. I mean, it had already been going on for about two years before I got there. The Americans wanted to do it. It's taken us four years. And that would be, uh, if, if it was equivalence, that was the route we ended up going, that would have to be repeated in every sector. And, you know, it takes two to tango on an equivalence decision. And we don't have... You know, as one party, you don't have all the the music and the moves. So, you're right. Uh, I think there are these these practical problems that I just all I really want to try and do is make people be aware of what some of these practical problems are. People can decide perfectly properly that um, there is some upside in terms of uh, other issues that it's worth paying an economic price for. But the thing that I can't see is how you can, and I'll stick on financial services because that's what I've been immersed in in the last two years, I can't see how you can disentangle yourself from the single market and not have more barriers, more costs, more uncertainty and fewer opportunities. Commissioner Hill's got a train to catch, so I'm just going to take one more round. Another blue shirt, then down here in front, and then uh, in the second row. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ostap. I'm a postgraduate student at City University, London. Uh, thank you so much for a lecture. Uh, you said a lot about benefits for UK in Romania in the European Union. I uh, can I ask you to tell more about benefits for European Union of UK uh, remaining in uh, because if UK decides to leave and eventually the EU can develop more comprehensive financial um, services in centres like Frankfurt, Luxembourg or Vienna so uh, why should EU want uh, UK to remain? Thank you. Next question down there. Karina Robinson, CEO of Robinson Hambro and a governor of the LSE. Um, I will only say actually one comment on, on the, the Remain and the Brexit, which was a friend of mine from Frankfurt was recently visiting, and she said that they were going to rent out their property in Frankfurt because the prices seemed to be going up. Now, probably as the way the polls are turning and it looks more likely Remain will happen, I'm sure the prices will go down. So that says a lot about... Um, other financial markets. But this is actually a question about financial stability and banking regulation, which is one of the things that has happened with the transformation of regulation after the financial crisis, is that banks are being encouraged through capital and the amount of capital they have to set aside to become more focused on their own internal markets. So you have a number of banks getting out of Africa, Barclays getting out of Africa, not for business reasons, for reasons to do with capital. Spanish banks who want to continue expanding in Latin America, they're hinterland, but they can't do it for reasons of capital. Is this really helping financial stability? And then final question over here. Thank you. My name is Katarzyna Schwarz. I'm a lawyer, uh, alumni of LSE of 2012. 
I uh, thank you very much for this informative lecture, and I would have the following uh, question. You mentioned the, the long negotiated deal on the equivalence of, of regimes for CCPs between the EU uh, and US. Um, now, financial services as such uh, are not covered by, by the currently negotiated deal uh, between the trade deal between the EU and the US, the so-called TTIP. So my question would be, would be the following. Do you think that a comprehensive deal uh, on financial services between the EU and US is possible? Is, is it feasible? And is it next? Okay. Um, well, thank you for those. I think uh, <coughs> in terms of the first question on, you know, what are the benefits of the, for the rest of the EU uh, of, of Britain staying in, um, I think in a way that, <laughs> that that's kind of a question uh, in some ways for the other um, member states and countries, and all I would observe is given your sensible point that you might think Luxembourg or Paris or Frankfurt could see some commercial opportunity, so why wouldn't they be in favour of Britain leaving? Uh, their governments aren't arguing that, and I think that's because of broader uh, concerns about um, geopolitics, uh, what's going on on our eastern border, uh, questions about the um, stability and kind of security of, of Europe generally in an uncertain time, and the fact that uh, I think when I go, when I go round, uh, people often think in the UK, and I know you're, you're not a Brit, people often think in the UK that if you're a Brit in Europe, your experience must be that 27 other countries or people all have exactly the same view, they're completely homogenous, and that it'll be you on your own against the 27. That's the kind of simplified view, I think, that some people have. That is not my experience at all, as anyone who's worked there or studied there will know. It's much more complex, there are many more undercurrents. And I think when you talk to a range of different countries, they'll have a range of different reasons why they think it's sensible for the UK to be in. I mean, for some of them, it is about having an outward-looking, pro-market, liberal, competition, free trade country in. For others, it's more perhaps to do with the history of enlargement. And I think generally the, the, the feeling that uh, you know, Britain is a big player and that you wouldn't want a big player uh, no longer to be, to be playing. Um, this question on financial stability and what has been the effect of capital requirements on funding of the, the economy, on liquidity and so on and so forth uh, is... One of the questions that I'm trying to grapple with um, as part of what we call our call for evidence, one of the first things that I wanted to do when I got there was to look back at all the previous legislation that's been passed uh, 
and try and see whether there have been any intended or, in this case, unintended consequences. Some of those consequences that you talk about were intended, uh, but it may well be, I thought, that there could be unintended consequences, not just in the area of banking, but in a whole range of financial services where we legis- my predecessor and we legislated um, sequentially in 40 separate pieces of legislation on the back of the crisis, and you didn't know at the earlier part of the process where you might be at the later part of the process. So to try and step back and to ask people, which is how I've done it, I've asked the people who've been affected by the regulation to give us their evidence as to what the effect has been and whether we've got it right or whether we think we ought to change it. Is I'm in the middle of that at the moment. I think we have to have that debate because, crudely speaking, uh, you get one group of people, typically from the industry, who say that all the problems are the, sort, are the fault of regulation, and you get central bankers and regulators who say the regulation is all 100% absolutely spot-on and perfect. I think it's quite sensible to check. And it, it's not straightforward trying to untangle cause and effect, but we're trying to do that, and I hope that the evidence we get will enable us not just to look back but also inform some of the agenda that still isn't finalised in the sector of banking coming out of Basel where we've still got to set some uh, requirements in other areas. So I think you're absolutely right to ask the question. That's the process I'm trying to um, t- to work through on, a, on an evidence-based Way, which is how I'm trying to approach all the work that I'm doing on Capital Markets Union and everything else. On TTIP, where are we? Um, there's an issue on financial services. Um, I mean, the main thing we're concentrating on is an issue to do with, uh, which links to the question before about equivalence, about um, working together more upstream on trying to agree regulation. And the example I used before on central counterparties, we've had to try and retrofit our legislation after the event, and so that's why you have an equivalence process. If you can find a way of doing that um, earlier in the process, so working together between the EU and the US on... um, on regulation, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so we're having a debate with the Americans still um, as to uh, what's the best way of doing that, whether you actually hook it into TTIP, which is what the EU is arguing. The US are cautious on that and don't uh, particularly want to go down that route. And that is something that's being um, debated at the moment. But I hope one way or another... Out of it, out of the TTIP process, we'll get a better system of um, kind of rule, you know, regulatory uh, kind of convergence um, that works better for both the EU and the US, and actually in due course, which we haven't really talked about here, you know, all the other new emerging jurisdictions uh, which are coming up fast in whole parts of the world, where you know the focus has been historically. EU-US, but we've actually got to think about 
um, you know, the rest of the world here. Uh, and I think I'm keen to try and do more work to get the different jurisdictions working together earlier. It would have been very nice to have gone on for longer, but we must let Lord Hill catch his train and get home to his proper bed. Um, and, um, but it's been a fascinating evening. I hope we can have you back. When, as I hope we have voted to remain, we should talk about the timetable for the CMU and the sort of the problems of it and, and so on. So I hope we can have you back because uh, you've certainly given us a great deal to think about and presented it really splendidly this evening. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.